Hey everyone, welcome to Book Club. Um, I'm your host, Thomas, or yeah, as I'm known in Book Club, Sir Thomas St. Thomas. Thanks for that, Beverly. Um, I'm going to be taking us through um, an intro for our book uh, this month. Um, it's the Gulag Archipelago. I'm sure many, many, many people have heard of it. This is a copy that we're um, utilizing. It's not the uh, 50th anniversary, which came out recently, which our buddy Jordan Peterson got the right intro to. It's a, a little bit older. Um, and it is the abridged version. Um, I've only read the abridged version. And if you don't know, the original was in three different volumes. And um, maybe one day I or somebody else will go through all three volumes, but that can be quite a chore. And um, I think the abridged version is, um, it, it gets us through exactly what we need to know about this book. And in this uh, new format of book club, and we used to come on and just have everyone discuss the book that we're reading for the month. Um, in this new format, what we decided to do was advocate for a book. So um, if you advocated for a book, it meant that you had to go through the process of letting us know why you're advocating for the book. And um, then we'd bring in everybody and discuss that book. So when I thought of the concept of advocating for a book, um, it made me think that what I need to do is convince people that it's a book they should read. You know, and we often talk about books and we might, you know, if you have a bunch of friends who like to read books, you might recommend what you would call a good book. And um, I wanted to advocate for something that wasn't simply just a good book. And the Gulag um, is a good book. It's fun to read in some sense in a real um, dark humor sense. Um, but it's also an important book. So when I thought of advocating for it, it was because more because I think of it as an important book. Um, and this wasn't the first time I had read it. Um, I actually did a reread for the purposes of this club. And because I'd be advocating, I want to make sure that I had something current, hopefully somewhat coherent uh, together to make sure that I could convince people that um, it was a book that was worth their time because it's not only good, but it's important. Um, and the reason I think it's important or it, what any important book would be would mean that um, it's telling the reader something they need to know. It goes beyond um, into being entertaining. So we might have a book that we take on vacation. We want to read uh, at the beach when we have a lot of uh, um, free time and we don't need to focus too much. We want something a little bit lighter. And this is definitely not a light book. Um, so when I say an important book and something that people should read, um, I think this one is important because it communicates what would be a universe, universal truth about the nature of humanity. Um, and it looks into some really, really, really dark places um, throughout our history. And unfortunately, the probably what I think is one of the best ways to understand the nature of humanity is by looking in those dark places, because it not only tells us what we're capable of doing and what we need to avoid, but whenever you look into those dark places, you often see a bit of light. And throughout history, there's always going to be dark places, whether it's um, country to country or individual to individual. 
And it's not whether or not I as an individual or us as a country or a neighborhood, et cetera, is going to be in a dark place. It's when. And this book talks about one of those dark places, but it also talks about people within those dark places and the light that they shone, even though they were under those circumstances. And then it goes even further than that and talks about, well, why is it that some people were able to survive and sometimes thrive in those situations? And what was it about those people that was different than anybody else? You know, and, and in some sense, it's also a book about history. Um, but I, I think that this type of historical book and the way it's written is much better than what we are used to in our uh, elementary, high school, even some of our university classes, excuse me. You know, it's, it's got dates and times and places and um, names of individuals, but it doesn't just list them as a whole bunch of things that we need to memorize so we can get them right on a multiple choice test. What it does is it takes us through the patterns that exist in the nature of humanity and helps us to understand why those things happen and then even see some of those same things um, in those patterns today. So we can use those uh, lessons in humanity and start recognizing them today, know where to look, what to look for, and what, if anything, could be done about it. So to get started on the actual book itself, you know, I, I think that um, the context with which it was published is really important to understand and why it's so important. So one of the things I, I I was thinking when I first read the book and it talks about, and we all know about the history of, uh, in some case, in some respect, the history of repression in the Soviet Union at the time throughout the 20th century. I mean, 18 million people ended up in prison in the gulags. Uh, the word gulag was actually created specifically um, for the Soviet Union. So, you know, it's it's no it's it, everyone understands how much oppression was going on there but oppression is an abstract concept it's very different than when you when you actually look at what was going on to those individual people and i kept thinking well if it's so oppressive how does something like this get published and the interesting thing was this book was at the time um, never published in the soviet union um, so how do we even know about it well the author, Alexander Solzhenitsyn, um, after being released from the Gulag and being in exile for some time, finally returned to the Soviet Union and living as a, what would be called at the time a free citizen, a comrade, as they would say. And he had something to say. Um, so what he did is he utilized his time to write a book. And that book that he wrote it was called One Day in the Life of Ivan Des Denisovich. Sorry, my Russian is more than faulty. Um, and even that book, what it does, is it goes through a day in the life of a person in the gulags. And if you've read the Gulag Archipelago, you know about some of the torture that they went through and some of the 
um, you know, probably all of the camps, especially during the interrogation phase when they were trying to get people to uh, admit to some kind of crime. And in this book that Solzhenitsyn wrote, The Day in the Life, he doesn't even go into the uh, torture itself. It really is just an incredibly detailed um, account of what happens to the soul of a person when they're in this camp. And at the time it was published, um, Stalin, we were beyond Stalin, we're beyond Lenin, they're both dead. And Khrushchev is now in power. But it's still the Soviet Union, you know, so why is it that we're even hearing about any of this? Well, it's important to remember the context here because Khrushchev was um, a part of this, of this system of the Gulag. There's a, a famous story, well, not, not too famous, but famous enough to be and useful here, that there's a point in time where um, when Stalin was still alive and he was still um, head of the Soviet Union, that Khrushchev was standing at one of the tables at one of the meetings and Stalin slipped a piece of cake on his seat. So Khrushchev ends up sitting on the cake and uh, Stalin used to use tactics like that to humiliate people um, even within his own command. So Khrushchev was known to hate, hate Stalin. So now you're in a situation where Khrushchev has this um, hated dead mentor, previous mentor, and he's now in charge of the Soviet Union. But during his time when he was in charge of the Soviet Union, he was also actually part of the system that was putting people in the gulags, murdering people by the millions. Uh, so what do you do about that? Well, what you do is you start pointing fingers. So one of the ways he pointed fingers is by allowing this one individual to publish this one book. Um, and he probably had no idea what would happen once he published that one book. So now you have this book being circulated throughout the Soviet Union where about one million people live that had been in these camps. And they are reading this book. It's on fire. Everybody's talking about it. And now Khrushchev is in a difficult position because, you know, for a second, he wants to point the finger at Stalin and say, look, look at all these things that Stalin did. But at the same time, he has crime stands for as, as well. So through a mistake or um, just maybe Khrushchev's inability to see into the future and understand the reaction that would happen, he released this book. So that already put um, Alexander Solzhenitsyn on the world stage. Um, he then published a second book, um, which he had to do actually in uh, the West. He wasn't able to do in Russia. And it was called Cancer Ward. Uh, there was a period of time when he suffered from cancer. And his second book, Cancer Ward, was about um, healthcare in the Soviet Union in some sense, and um, really the fatalistic uh, manner in which it was delivered there. So then what happens is he starts putting together a manuscript for the Gulag Archipelago. And one of the reasons he did that was because after he started writing about the Gulag um, in A Day in the Life, he started receiving thousands and thousands of letters from people 
who experienced much of the same things that he did. And in that repressive environment, you don't have anybody publishing these things in the paper, you know, in the magazines. People just don't talk about it. There's this sense in the Soviet Union that the past of the, is the past. Why are you bringing up this um, hurt and painful thing? Let's move on to the future. We've got a lot of things to work on. But, you know, there are things that happen to sores like that when they are allowed to fester. And Alexander Solzhenitsyn knew that. And it was also unfair to all the people that he was uh, imprisoned with. And he wanted to get those stories out. So what he's doing is taking all of those stories and starting to get documents as much as he can get about the um, history of the Gulag and what was going on there and combining them into a story that helped outline the uh, manner in which people were arrested, the repression that happened, the interrogation, who was doing it, and really the scale of this whole operation and how it was not just something that happened aside of the Soviet Union, kind of like where, you know, every society has prisons, but that it was an essential um, byproduct of the actual um, ideology itself. And it was inescapable once they decided to um, go down this path. So I wanted to read a quote from uh, the book here as we started to go into this process here. Excuse me while I find it. So when he was talking about the ideology of the um, Soviet Union at the time, it had a lot to do with um, man as being the center point for um, what is to be known and there is nothing above man. So I thought this quote was um, important and made, uh, made a lot of sense and gives us the idea of what he, the author saw as the central problem in the Soviet Union and why they went down this path. Power is a poison well known for thousands of years. If only no one were ever to acquire material power over others, but to the human being who has faith in some force that holds dominion over all of us and who is therefore conscious of his own limitations, power is not necessarily fatal. For those, however, who are unaware of any higher sphere, it is a deadly poison. For them, there is no antidote. So in the author's mind, one of the issues that they ran into with their um, system is that they elevated mankind to the um, highest rung of power at the top of the hierarchy. And without some kind of guiding principle, um, they fell into this trap of um, looking only to power. And if man is at the top of the hierarchy, the only way they can have power, which is always something that is relative, power itself is always relative, you can only have power over other people, which is why they went down this path in the author's mind. Now, as far as the uh, content itself, I think one of my favorite chapters is, uh, luckily enough, one of the first. It's uh, about the arrests. And one of the things that I really loved about this uh, first chapter um, 
is that it really gets into um, the process of what people go through when they're being arrested, um, why they're being arrested, how they're being arrested, how that process evolves, and why it is that people don't stand up. So for Solzhenitsyn, it really all starts with his arrests. And um, it's important to know that he was a well-educated man. I think he studied mathematics at university. Uh, he was an artillery officer and he had served his country with distinction. He had tons of medals and was actually responsible for um, a lot of wins um, in their battle in World War II. And he was actually in the field at the time he's, he's summoned. So imagine being a soldier, uh, you're an officer, you're in the field and you get summoned to uh, your brigadier commander's office and you report and close the door and there's several other officers, officers there with you. And then two counterintelligence officers who are hiding behind the regular officers pop up and in a really theatrical sense, they announce, you are under arrest. And it was interesting because as he's building up to this point, he talks about all the people who have been arrested before. And the answer or the response to that, you are under arrest for everybody is always me, what for? And he said he found himself in the exact situation where he said, me, what for? And that was one of the key ingredients with the Soviet process of getting people arrested in the Gulag is that nobody was ever allowed to know what it was they were arrested for. And in the author's case, it was a little bit different. He found that his brigadier commander who had never really spoken to him before um, not in a mean way, but an incredibly professional way where he gave him his orders and that was it. Um, he said, Solzhenitsyn, come on over here. And he asked him one question. He says, you have a friend who is now fighting on the Ukrainian front. Is that correct? And the counterintelligence officers shouted out, how dare you? You have no right. And... I found that really interesting because in unique in this, the author put that forth as well as being incredibly unique because he then knew exactly why he was being arrested. Unlike thousands and thousands of other people, he had a friend on the Ukrainian front who he had been writing letters to. And in one of those letters, the author um, criticized Stalin and they were reading those letters. And as soon as they saw the this letter that he was criticizing Stalin in, um, they arrested him. And they arrested him because the person he was writing to um, ratted him out. And then you would even think, well, why would this person rat out his friend? Well, when you know that everybody is reading everything and you receive a letter where your president is uh, being uh, criticized, what happens if you don't rat him out? Well, when they arrest your friend, they're gonna come arrest you. And then your crime is not ratting somebody out that you know is a political dissident. So that's the type of fear and the type of tension that amounts in a society 
where you know you're under surveillance, where you know the wrong words, the wrong criticism itself, et cetera, um, can land you in jail. Not only does it make you scared to say things, it makes you scared not to say things because now you are in a position where you need to point out who is doing what, because if you don't, you're going to have your own uh, consequences. And one of the things that he talks about is why people just don't stand up. You know, if people are being arrested for what they think is nothing, uh, why don't they just say, hey, stop, protest, do whatever it takes. Um, and he says this, universal innocence also gives rise to the universal failure to act. Maybe they won't take you. Maybe it will all blow over. And that's the thing about constantly arresting innocent people is you think that they were innocent and you're not sure that they did anything wrong and they proclaim their innocence. So you assume that because you're innocent, that it's not going to happen to you too. But what you don't realize, it, it, does, it doesn't matter who is or who isn't innocent. It's about filling up the system and, and providing the bodies. Now, there are several things in this book that I really enjoyed, and um, I am hope a lot of you who have read it or some of the people in the book club um, have enjoyed those things as well. Um, and there was a couple of different lines, and I'm going to read another quote that helps put this in uh, context of the manner in which this type of insanity can lead to just pure stupidity in a, a whole population. This one's a little bit longer, so please bear with me, but I think it's worth it. And the author says, here is one vignette from those years as it actually occurred. A district party conference was underway in Moscow province. It was presided over by a new secretary, secretary of the district party committee, replacing one recently arrested. At the conclusion of the conference, a tribute to Comrade Stalin was called for. Of course, everyone stood up just as everyone had leaped to his feet during the conference at every mention of his name. The small hall echoed with stormy applause, rising to an ovation for three minutes, four minutes, five minutes. The stormy applause rising to an ovation continued, but palms were getting sore and raised arms were already aching, and the older people were panting from exhaustion. It was becoming insufferably silly, even to those who really adored Stalin. However, who would dare be the first to stop? The secretary of the district party committee could have done it. He was standing on the platform, and it was he who had just called for the ovation, but he was a newcomer. He had taken the place of a man who had been arrested. He was afraid. After all, NKVD men, which was the... Um, precursor for the KGB, were standing in the hall applauding and watching to see who quit first. And then that obscure small hall, unknown to the leader, the applause went on six, seven, eight minutes. They were done for. Their goose was cooked. They couldn't stop now till they collapsed with heart attacks. At the rear of the hall, which was crowded, they could, of course, cheat a bit, clap less frequently, less vigorously, not so eagerly. But up there with the Presidium, where everyone could see them, 
the director of the local paper factory, an independent and strong-minded man stood with the Presidium, aware of all the falsity and all the impossibility of the situation. He still kept on applauding, nine minutes, 10. In anguish, he watched the Secretary of District Party Committee, but the latter dared not stop. Insanity to the last man, with make-believe enthusiasm on their faces, looking at each other with faint hope. The district leaders were just going to go on and on applauding till they fell where they stood, till they were carried out of the hall on stretchers. And even then, those who were left after would not falter. Then after 11 minutes, the director of the paper factory assumed a business-like expression and sat down in his seat. And, oh, a miracle took place. Where had the universal, uninhibited, indescribable enthusiasm gone? To a man, everyone else stepped dead and sat down. They had been saved. The squirrel had been smart enough to jump off his revolving wheel. That first man who stopped clapping, he was arrested and he ended up in the gulag. So that's the type of insanity that goes on. And it reminded me of something that we're seeing today where it's not necessarily what you say, but sometimes it's what you don't say. So when you're, when you're posting on um, social media, when you're declaring things, it's not just, you can't necessarily just sit on the sidelines anymore because people start to become suspicious of what you're not saying, what you're not doing. Are you not sharing a black square when everybody is? And it doesn't get that extreme yet, of course. And very often people say, yeah, but well, you know, this isn't Stalinism. This isn't um, the Soviet Union. This isn't Cuba. This isn't China. And it's true. But you know, history isn't exact. It's the ideas that underlie that type of activity. Um, and somebody once said that, and I really like this idea that history doesn't repeat itself, but it rhymes. And when we see these ideas popping up and these people taking these actions, um, there's some underlying structure that is the same. And we're starting to see some of that same stuff here today. And one of the things I wanted to share was, um, you know, it's one thing to think of uh, the gulag as a single place where there's a lot of men and women who are um, locked up, made to work, lay breaks in the cold uh, tundra in Siberia. But it's another thing to really understand the um, massive expansion of that. So I have a map and Beverly, would you mind sharing the map on screen for me here? So in the book, there is a time where he talks about the um, extensiveness of this uh, system. And it's important to remember that this is the Soviet Union at the time. And um, this includes a lot of places that are no longer part of Russia. Now this landmass is bigger than the whole of uh, the European landmass. Every single one of those little dots is a gulag, a prison camp. In every single one of those little dots at any one time, is between 2,000 and 10,000 people. So when we talk about the gulags, it's not just a few camps here and there. It's a massive system that spread across a landmass greater than Europe that at some time housed 
18 million people, not, not necessarily at one time, but about 18 million people went through that system. Um, and many of them died um, toward the end of the existence of these gulags, assuming none of them exist today. Um, and I bet there's in some respects, some of them um, still do. But only about 1 million people came home. So I think it's important to remember the massive amount of people who um, were locked up here. Thanks, Beverly. You can take it off screen. So before we get into the discussion, um, and I wrap up why I wanted to be an advocate for this book, and I start out with talking about why books are important um, as compared to just good and why I was an advocate for this book. And it's a great way to look at history and the history of the Soviet Union, the history of the 19th century, and what was going on, uh, not only during World War II, but uh, shortly thereafter. And that it's not just to look at dates and times and places and being aware that 18 million people were locked up in these gulags and tortured in unspeakable ways. But for it to be important, for me to be an advocate of this book, um, it would have to share a lesson about the nature of humanity. And I think that nature that Alexander Solzhenitsyn found in the gulags um, is best said by this one quote. If only it were all so simple. If only there were evil people somewhere insidiously committing evil deeds and it were necessary only to separate them from the rest of us and destroy them. But the line dividing good and evil cuts through the heart of every human being. And who is willing to destroy a piece of his own heart? During the life of any heart, this line keeps changing place. Sometimes it is squeezed one way by exuberant evil, and sometimes it shifts to allow enough space for good to flourish. One and the same human being is, at various stages, under various circumstances, a totally different human being. At times he is close to being a devil, at times to sainthood, but his name doesn't change. And to that name, we ascribe the whole lot, good and evil. So it's that concept that I keep referring back to in my mind whenever I think of this uh, novel and how it affects, how it teaches us about the nature of humanity. And in essence, it's a reminder that the path to tyranny doesn't lie outside of us. It's not some other country. It's not some other ethnicity. It's not some other political party. It's not a bunch of unvaccinated people. It's not white people. It's you and it's me. And it lives in the heart of every single human being. And unless we're looking inward and making sure that whatever that line that vacillates from one side to the other of good and evil, is moving towards good as often as possible, that regardless of how far it gets to the good, there's always gonna be a slice of evil there and you have to be aware of it. And if you're too busy looking out at other people and doing what's too easy by saying, oh, there's a the bad guy, um, that line of evil is gonna start to eat away that good. 
and you're going to find that you turn into the monster uh, that you claim to be fighting. So thanks for that time. I'm, I'm hoping we can have a great discussion about this book. So Beverly, that's it for me up front. I appreciate it. Can you guys hear me? Yeah, Carter. Dude, uh, <laughs> all the spots that I had highlighted was like, oh, these were the ones that I find you and I are often on the same page. Um, and Yeah, we have similar highlights very often. <laughs> yeah, and I, I just want to bring up something that um, one of the first things you highlighted was this section. For me, it's on page 68 in the abridged version. Um but this, this uh, excluded by the nature of their work and by deliberate choice from the higher sphere of human existence, the servitors of the blue institution lived in their lower sphere with all the, this is the, the part you're talking about where um, power, if you just leave power up to, yeah, if you just leave uh, power up to people without a, uh, who are, who are not guided by what he's calling the higher sphere of human existence. And the reason that I, um, I both like and dislike this um, is I think he's 100% correct in that um, you need uh, you need something that is not your base, just um, whimsical, uh, craven kind of uh, desires for power or whatever, like that's definitely a problem. Um, but when I read this, I think this is universal principles is what, this is what the enlightenment, uh, parts of the enlightenment, at least the, the thinkers that were responsible for America, as opposed to the thinkers that were responsible for the Soviet union, because obviously they're both enlightenment era thinkers, Right. Um, and we tend to think of the Enlightenment as people like John Locke, but you could just as easily say, well, Karl Marx is part of the Rousseau. Enlightenment, right? Rousseau, right? And say, okay, well, th so that branch of the Enlightenment did not um, adopt the same universal principles that, uh, you know, the, the Western branch did. And, or, you know, obviously saying one is Western is weird because they're co located, but just ideologically. Um, and so I, I view that as like, yes, universal principles are very important. Um, and in fact, they're crucial. But the thing that I don't like about this, and I know that Solzhenitsyn is, is uh, religious and coming at, he comes at this from a very um, religious perspective. And what I don't like about that is um, it's obvious to me that religion doesn't prevent this behavior either. Um, that religion on its own is also used to justify um, horrific, horrific treatment of people. And so there's something beyond uh, just a, a mere belief in a higher sphere. It, it matters what those ideas are. Um, and if those ideas are, uh, if those ideas are in the, in the, on the realm of universal, um, individual rights and that people have some uh you know I'll, I'll use the word equality even though i don't technically mean equality but like 
universal uh, equality, at least Equal legally dignity. and morally, yeah, then then uh, then you get one set of beliefs. But if those if those principles are you know, the end justifies the means because this is for a greater good, whether that greater good is because God told me or because it's the state, you still end up with horrific, horrific um, results. And I think you have people who use religion for to justify good principles and to say, well, these are the like God is good and these are the principles that matter and he wants people to be treated equally with dignity and that's therefore that's why I'm going to do this good thing. But you also have people who use religion the complete opposite way. And it's like, well, God's appointed me king or has appointed so-and-so person king and and this is all for some greater good. It's some greater plan and therefore treating people horribly is fine. And so um that was the part that really and that's early in the book, right? That's like I think that's in the second yeah. or third chapter, the blue caps chapter. Yeah, blue caps. Um, but that's something that really resonated. I I really liked. I really liked that he brought that up because I thought it was a good thing to be thinking about. And um, I don't know. I, I I'm wondering what other people think about that. Here's the, to me the, a big thing about human nature is that Enlightenment philosophy and religion are both tools in the human toolbox. Whether or not they're used for good or evil is up for to is up to whether or not the person wants to do good or evil. And I mean that in the looking at their actions, not necessarily like, do they literally want to twirl their mustache, be evil, but like the outcome that they want emotionally, psychologically, it, they're going to find a way to either, to justify it either through religion or philosophy, such as Marx. So to me, it is really just, it's a tool it is not inherently good. It is not inherently evil. I think seculars have a really big problem with looking at religion and going, oh, it's evil because people have used it for evil. And it's like, no, there's there's also been people who've used it for good. So to me, that's a big thing behind any kind of philosophy, any kind of moral philosophy. Like you can tell people until you're blue in the face that your morals and your principles matter and that these are like this is the best way to structure your, uh, your ideology so that you're don't, you're not hurting people, but if they will find a way to twist it, if necessary, to get to the pain they want to cause, that's the real problem. It's human nature. I don't, I just don't believe that any idea is, is, it is, uh, what is the word I'm looking for? Like, can't be used this way. Like, I just don't, I don't see any idea being protected from human nature. And it's in some people's desire to use it to hurt others. Yeah. And I, there's a lot of truth to both of those points. Um, but one thing I want to remind people if they haven't read the book or don't realize is the author became religious, but he wasn't religious when he entered the gulags. And one of the reasons that he started looking into religion was a lot of the people who were in the gulags who seemed to not be crushed by it were religious people. Uh, not always, but very often that's what he found. Um, and as far as religion being used one way or the other, just based on the person, I think it's also um, we have to make sure that um, we remember that religions in some sense are just ideas. And 
there is good and bad inherent in the ideas themselves. Um, so I wouldn't say any idea can be used anyway. Um, and I think I always think of this example. When I think of the United States or the West in general, and then I think of the Middle East, and then I think of Israel, those are all very different places and very different locations for the most part. But the Middle East is very different from the United States when it comes to the people and the philosophies and the ideas. Now, Israel is in the same area, but they're very different than the people that surround them. But they're also very similar to the United States, even though they're in very different locations. And I think that that speaks in part to the nature of the ideas at the base of a lot of those societies as well. Because the reason the United States and Israel in some sense is very similar, where people call it Little America, isn't just um, by chance. I think there are some very similar ideas that in the cultures that exist, which is why they're so similar, even though they're even though they're in such different places. So I wouldn't want to say, you know, religion is religion is religion, and regardless of which one you choose, you it depends on whether or not you want to use it for ill or not. Um, but I think that we have to give those different religion their due in the sense that they do have different ideas at the base of their philosophies. Yeah, I, 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 I agree with what you're saying. I don't, I don't want to speak for Alex. Maybe she can speak up here. But I, I think uh, one thing I was getting from what Alex was saying was that, not to simplify it, but humans are really good at rationalizing. So if you get someone who wants to do evil, they could literally twist anything to do the evil that they want to do. They can reinterpret language. They can say, oh, well, this was metaphorical, or they didn't mean this, or this word actually means that. Like People can rationalize whatever. If, if you really want to do evil, um, there's no – this is similar to the argument of like the, the founders of America wrote a constitution and thought this will prevent people from doing these bad things. And like here we are a couple hundred years later and – People are just willing to like, well, that's not what they meant by this word that clearly means this other thing. I've decided it means this so that we can, you know, I would like to be able to tax someone for growing potatoes in their own backyard and eating them like that's in the Constitution, right? Like they, they people are willing to just do whatever they want because they're willing to they're, they're willing to rationalize if they really have a driving factor. But I also agree with Thomas's point that the underlying ideas matter a great deal so um we are as bad as we are right now we're a far cry from saudi arabia right well you know there was something else um you know as as far as ideas go um i thought was really interesting so on page 43 he talks about um the arrests and the interrogations and one of the things that I found is that what they what they started to say is that when we when we sign a sentence ordering someone to be shot, we can never be absolutely certain, but only approximately in view of certain hypothesis and in a certain sense that we are punishing a guilty person. 
Thence arose the most practical conclusion that it was useless to seek absolute evidence for evidence is always relative or unchallengeable witnesses for they can say different things at different times. The proofs of guilt were relative approximate to and the interrogator could find them even when there was no evidence and no witness without leaving his office. Basing his conclusions not only on his own intellect, but also on his party's sensitivity, his moral forces. In other words, the superiority of someone who has slept well has been well fed and has not been beaten up and on his character. So what they started to do is in the interrogations, they never looked for witnesses. They never looked for evidence. What they started to rely on was the um, was the accused admitting to the um, transgression or to the crime. And I'm starting to, you know, there's so many things, especially as I reread this book this time, that I'm starting to see parallels on, where when you are a, a uh, attacked on social media, if, you're a, if it's a Twitter mob, you say the wrong thing, et cetera, et cetera. There's nobody looks and says, okay, well, let's look at what was said. Let's look at the context. Let's figure out what, whether or not this was right or wrong. What they do is they try to punish you until you um, apologize for doing something wrong. Aha, see, that's our evidence of the wrongdoing. It's not that there was any proof of anything. There's no philosophical discussion, nothing deep at all. It's only the um, confession of that person accused. And I kept seeing all these parallels. And even with the arrests where you're not allowed to know what your crime was or who did what, Title IX, when you have these people in colleges that are going up on these college courts and being accused of very often sexual crimes, they're getting kicked out of college, they can't go to any other college, but what they do is, and in part I understand why, because they want victims to come forward, but that person who's accused never gets to know who accused them what they were accused of, no investigation necessary, you're done. So all of these ideas we keep seeing pop up today in the very same sense, they're not as extreme. We'll get yelled at for saying, yeah, but you know what, big deal. You know what, they can go to some other school or whatever, which often isn't the case. Um, but like I said, it's, it's a rhyme of history. You know, we don't have to get to the exacts but you have to have those bad ideas and those bad ideas are starting to fester again. Well, and, and then, oh, oh sorry, go ahead. No, you're fine. I, I was just gonna say that, uh, and cause I, I study the Title IX issue a lot. Um, it's very important to me. Uh, the, we have this idea though, that it's like, well, since it's not that bad, we shouldn't have to do anything about it. And it's like, first of all, that's that one person's only you know, life on this planet and who knows how much money they already put into going to this university. Uh, so yes, we do have to do something about it. And secondly, there's going to be someone tomorrow and then the next day and the next day, and it's going to grow and pretending as if one instance isn't bad enough to start moving forward with making changes is stupid. That is a rationalization to not do anything. So Gita, you were going to say you were going to say something. Uh, I was going to say um, the the default was the 
guilt, not the innocence. You know, it, it was you were presumed to be guilty and in, in, we cannot let go a person who may be guilty of something um, versus trying to, you know, pr pr protect the innocence of a person. We're just presuming that everybody's guilty. And because it's impossible to prove everything is relative, well, we can't prove that this person is innocent. So we're just going to assume everyone is guilty. And just an easy way to write millions of people off. And uh, yeah. You just uh, described what anti-racism is. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, we're seeing this yeah. in just different forms, different, maybe slightly different semantics, but it's, it's yeah. you know. It's the same. Yeah. Certainly different levels of severity. Of a different kind. <laughs> but yeah. You reminded me of something that Thomas touched on this. And I don't, sorry, I had to go get some tea because I'm not 100% feeling better. So I missed part of what you were talking about, Thomas. But I think you touched on this where they don't care so much about, you can see, one of the things I, I got out of this was there's no, there's not really an individualist outlook in that you aren't really an individual. You're a number or a check on a, like there's a quota and they don't really care. Like if I go to Thomas's house to arrest Thomas, but he's not home, I'd, I'll arrest someone else. Like it doesn't matter. And he, he cited cases of people who, one of the things he was talking about was how few people resisted because everyone had this feeling of like, well, I didn't do anything wrong, so I'm sure if they arrest me, they'll be able to figure it out. And like, well, we'll write the wrong because I'm innocent. So like they're, they kind of still have some kind of trust in the system that even if I get arrested, I'm going to comply. Like, why would I fight like that? I could die fighting. Like, why would I fight? Uh, I'll just we'll sort this out. I'm going to comply and be a good citizen, a good comrade. And I'm going to we're going to it'll get sorted out later because I know I'm innocent. And those people perished. Or at, at the very least ended up, you know, with with 10 years or, or a quarter or whatever, like they ended up they ended up suffering. Uh, but some of the people that did resist or fled, they just never bothered to go after because it was difficult. And they were literally just trying to get number like quotas filled. So it was like, well, Thomas ran away to some other place and like he's kind of hard to get now. And I don't. Yeah. Who cares? He like crossed him off. It doesn't matter. I don't. He wasn't on my list per se as Thomas as having done something. It was like eh, his neighbors here. He'll do. And and they forget about Thomas. And like he goes on and lives his life. Uh, yeah. I, I think that was fascinating to me. Yeah, I think two things here is um, there was one woman who resisted. They tried to arrest her in a public place in the middle of the day. And um, what she did is she just went home. And then she got arrested at night. So it was like, you didn't even figure out that because they couldn't get you that day and you made a scene that they were going to come back at night. And what they started doing is only arresting people at night in their homes. Um, and as far as the collectivization of it, it reminds me, I, and I love this passage because it, if you cross out a couple words, it's the same thing we see today. And this was in a newspaper published by the Soviet um, national newspaper. This we are not quote. Yes. 
We I are not fighting people. against single individuals. We are exterminating the bourgeoisie as a class. You replace bourgeoisie with uh, whiteness. It is not necessary during the interrogation to look for evidence proving that the accused opposed the Soviets by word or action. The first question which you should ask him is what class does he belong to? What color does he belong to? What is his origin, his education, and his profession? These are the questions which will determine the fate of the accused. Such is the sense and the essence of red terror. They don't care. It has nothing to do with who you are as an individualist. And it always bugs me when people talk about individualism and even when they, they pretend to be um, gently questioning the idea of individualism, um, they, they don't see this collectivization as a problem. They don't understand that once you stop relating to people as individuals in your own life, much less um, on a national st uh, stage, it can only lead to the dehumanization of people. And that's exactly what we have here. Yes, because people yeah. are not people anymore. Therefore, they are not treated as people, as humans. And I think a part of the, the lack of resistance was that people still thought, well, you know, I know what the truth is. And there's truth is somewhere, but that the system is not built on truth. It's not looking for truth. It's not interested in truth. So that is just completely taken out of the works. And, you know, as an individual, you think, well, there's, I, I know I'm, I haven't done anything. I'm innocent. So you rely on that truth. And I think people who, who resisted the most, who never, for the lack of a better term, sold their souls, were people who lived by just by truth. You know, he talks about it as religious people, but I think it's the people who knew deep down what the truth was and were never willing to give that up, not to not lie to themselves or others, to simply not lie, because the whole thing starts with a lie. They make you lie to yourself. You lie all the way through. And maybe the people, some of the people who survived, that's how they survived. But there were those also who just never went down that path. And the most fascinating chapter for me, I think, was the escapers. It's just completely refusing to live in a world that where you cannot be free. Even for an hour in the woods being chased down, you're breathing free air. You know, you're a free person at that moment, even if you die at the end of all that. And reading this book, I just was thinking not so much about what makes people evil and, and do evil things. That's kind of an, you know, it's, it's easy to go down that path, but what makes people resist that and remain completely undamaged? What is in us that some people have, maybe all of us have, we just don't know how to use it or discover it, but what makes us, some of us, able to resist that untruth and to completely just ne never even without a doubt in your heart, 
that that's the right way to go. And you would never give that up for anything, not even for your own safety. That's Depends what on what you're scared of. Yeah. yeah. I, I think I, I've, I've seen people talk about being scared of the right things. Like what's, what, fe- what, what causes more fear in you? The idea that you might be beat up or the idea that you might completely crush your soul, whatever, whatever you believe is inside you. You know, what's, what's the worst thing doing it today or tomorrow. And it, it also reminded me of one of those things that they, he shows, he starts to show how the ideology was uh, deep within the manner in which they chose who to arrest and how to punish them, where religious people were targeted and given tenors, which is their term for 10 years. Prostitutes were only given three years. People who were thieves were giving, given much lighter sentences and often chosen to be rehabilitated because they saw thieves as people who had no regard for private property. So if you have no regard for private property, then you must be mentally on the right path because Marx summarized uh, Marxism as the abolition of private property. So we already know you're on the right track. So any person that has any strength of character, those are the types of people that they want to target the first and the hardest. Yeah. Would it help? I, I just, I, for people who haven't read, I wanted, I was struck by on page 116, I think it's chapter in the engine room is the chapter, chapter seven. Um, there's a list of, so the OSO was the special counsel of the NKVD, which is like the, you know, secret police. Um, and they had, one of the things he talked about was their, um, and, and it struck me because it's similar to how um, the U.S. bureaucracy works now, where there's not laws that they're subject to. There's just their own regulation. They kind of write their own rules, and that's, and they actually called, they they they, they said, um, you weren't getting a sentence you were just getting an, an administrative penalty was being imposed on you so there was no like we don't have to go through like official courts or it doesn't have to be that you violated a law this is just you violate you basically it's equivalent to you violated a regulation and we're penalizing you and instead of a fine that's 25 years in gulag right like that's the penalty right um and and instead of a court uh you just sit in front of a bureaucrat and he checks off some boxes and says that you violated the 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 opaque rules but let me list some of the rules that the OS cuz the OSO did have rules and I think people will be fascinated by this so um let's see there's 1 2 3 4 5 6 7 8 9 let me just read like all 10 of these the first one is ASA anti-soviet agitation okay second one is counter-revolutionary activity um, the third one is counter-revolutionary Trotskyite activity. And Solzhenitsyn says, and that T made the life of a Zek in camp much harder. A Zek, by the way, is a prisoner, right? So Trotskyite was worse than, than a regular counter-revolutionary. Um, suspicion of espionage. Espionage when it went beyond the bounds of suspicion was handed over to a tribunal. So this is just suspicion. You're getting, you're getting thrown in prison for years over suspicion of espionage contacts leading to suspicion of espionage like getting thrown in jail for contacts leading to the suspicion of espionage this is my favorite one counter-revolutionary thought 
get thrown in prison. Counter-revolutionary thought. Dissemination of anti-Soviet sentiments. Socially dangerous element, which is distinct from the next one, which is being a socially harmful element. That's the Twitter version. Too much harm. Uh, criminal activity. Uh, a favorite accusation against former camp inmates if there was nothing else to be used against them. And finally, he says there was a very expensive, expansive category. Member of a family. This is of a person convicted under one of the foregoing letter categories. So they it was institutionalized guilt by association and the the vagaries of this stuff. I mean, I was just struck that they wrote it down. I could I had kind of always assumed that there were written rules that seemed pretty clear, but they were just violating them all and no one cared. But they wrote it, they just wrote it down. Like, nope. Nope, you're a family member of someone who is convicted of uh, counter-revolutionary thought. Off it, to the gulag. It's amazing. And, and, you know, sometimes we, we see that people are saying the quiet part out loud. And when they do that, it's because they truly believe it. And they believe it so much that they can't believe that anyone would think it's a problem for them to say it out loud or write it down. Um, and we, we see that we still see that, cause, you know, we, we find hidden videos of people saying those things all the time, um, even though, you know, you know, people, you know, people, people slough it off. But it's like, no, that is what they actually believe. And that's how we get in these situations. Yeah. I, I see some you see parallels, some of those crimes that. Carter just read, like the dissemination of anti-Soviet thought and uh, the anti-social behavior. I, it, it sounds like that's uh, some of those are listed. The new law enforcement agency that they're establishing, the the Ministry of Truth, they're calling it, part of the uh, Department of Homeland Security. The 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 uh, disinformation um, that is the crimes that they're going after, and they're they're in a law enforcement branch for certain things. So reading through this looking for parallels to what people are using today is useful today yeah i mean i i it this being my second all the way through reading it was even more um you know and i wonder if it's because i'm more comfortable with the literature or because we're moving in more in that direction i just have more examples of those things <laughs> uh, unfortunately i think it's the latter but you know, it's, it's kind of okay. like, you know, what do you do about it? Yeah, that's a separate question. First, you just have to get people to recognize it. So I think, that, you know, that's just an example. I don't mean to go into that, uh, the new DHS agency, but um, people don't even recognize it. They don't see it. And I find reading these kind of books like this one helps clarify that. Like, oh, this sounds un place two words in that list and it sounds like what this new department's about um yes yeah, and, and it is a guilty truth as sagita said it's a guilty until proven innocent and that's that is the policy of all these social medias as far as censoring and the soviet union was clearly about censoring information like that was a huge part of why they're arresting people on suspicion um some of the i mean i didn't know a lot of the details in this but 
like one of the ones I thought of when you were talking about arresting everyone, when during World War II, when the Soviet Union, quote unquote, liberated from the Nazis, some of the, the you know Eastern European countries, one of the things they did was any Russian immigrants that had gone there in past years, they arrested them and threw them in the gulag. Like they don't want those people to go back to Russia and talk about what life's like in Poland, Czechoslovakia. Um, and you certainly anybody that came from Germany, including people that were in the military, right? They saw how Germans lived. Um, I, I had no idea reading this book that, you know, all, all this was going on, you know, in immeasurable detail, why they were the allies of the United States government. Like, how did Roosevelt and Churchill not know what was going on? And it, it made me wonder in the end, like, was it really a good thing that that Russia defeated the Germans as far as Russia goes? Like, I'm not convinced after reading this book that the Germans were worse. Like, maybe it well, would have been yeah. better for the Russian people if the Nazis took over Russia. Well, and the one thing to, like, sure. remember, and it's something that they don't talk a lot about in history, is that when Russia, during World War II, when Russia was occupying German territory, like, and American soldiers were there, too, and we even had civilians over there, like, lives were over there because we were building bases at the time still. Like, we were, the war was still ongoing, but we were, we had gained enough territory at that point that we could like establish even having civilians over there. Uh, American women who were there had to wear their husband's uniforms to not be raped by Russian soldiers. Like the, the Russians didn't care. I mean, this was, so it's like, they don't, they like to pretend like they were, we always knew they were great allies, but when, <laughs> and, and we didn't actually know what they were doing. And it's like, well, I'm sorry. You kind of knew something awful was going on if literally all the American soldiers were like, wear my uniform, it's the only way to protect you. Like you had to have known something was going on. There was there was at least chatter. That's what I'm saying. Yeah, best kept the secret. Everyone knows, but everyone ignores that it's happening. <laughs> so uh, that's- The British the, government the was historical... turning people over to, to the Russians. Yes. To the yeah, that was one of the like, things that- They that, obviously that knew. Me. <laughs> yeah, and and well, one of the historical lessons that I learned was how just how much the West knew stuff yeah. was going on and didn't care. Like the 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 Cossacks, the, especially the the Lienz Cossacks, but like j just generally the way that the British government treated the Cossacks. I mean, imagine you've got all these people who don't they're afraid don't want to go back to Russia. Like that's got to be a clue. Like, please, please, please don't send us back yeah. to Russia, even though you've been fighting for them and like you've been like you've been fine. Like you're not you haven't done anything, obviously, some of them obviously had, but depending on the groups. But um, yeah. And and the Brits were just like, oh, don't worry. They lied outright. We're not going to send you back. Don't worry. And then they rounded them up and sent them back. Um and the the complicity, the how how the West was complicit in this, um, was really disturbing to me. Just to understand how much it was clear, you know, the West knew really really horrible things were going on, and still turning over Russian citizens um, or uh, immigrants 
who you know had come to the West, just still handing them back, knowing that they're likely going to go get thrown in the gulag. Right. Yeah, well, the story is really chilling about the Ukrainian, uh, you know, re rebels, if you want to call it, about the, the forces that were attempting to defeat the Soviet Union as an independent and trying to get West support and hook yep. up with the West and the the British. Yeah. They mostly blame the British, but they tricked them. They said, "Okay, you can join us. Turn in your Russian weapons because we're going to give you, you know, Western British-made and American-made weapons. So turn in all your weapons." And then after they did that, they turned them over to the Russians. They, yeah, they, I was. They, they, they had up, to know. Mm -hmm. um, I was growing up, and well, <clears throat> for the first ten years of my life in the Soviet Union, Lithuania was still part of the Soviet Union. And we always thought my father's family, my father was seven years old. They ended up in gulags. And I, from the days when I was a little kid, I, you know, I knew everything about it. And we always thought that the West just didn't know. They just did not know what was happening, that they needed to hear the stories that they need. They just needed to know if they knew they would see, you know, and, and do something about it. But I, you know, up until really recent years, I, I realized that, no, everyone knew. Everyone knew, maybe not at the beginning, but definitely later on, everyone knew. And so what was, was it because the Soviets had nuclear weapons already? I, I don't even know at what point that was acquired. Was that the reason? Were there other reasons? I just can't figure it out. I think there's some um, ideological reasons behind it too. I mean, you know, I think when we say everyone knew, I think it's, there's probably a lot of people who did know in some sense that there was something going on. But I do think that the Soviet Union was incredibly and still is incredibly very good at controlling information, which is why we should always be careful at anyone, individuals or groups who seek to control information. Because um, even today, I've seen reports where a guy who's in the Ukraine today being bombed, he's calling his dad who's in Russia saying, dad, we're leaving. We got to get out of here. And the dad doesn't believe him that anything right. is happening in the Ukraine. So they're still um, controlling people by controlling that type of information. And even throughout the time that the gulags were up and running, we had Western intellectuals um, looking for the progressive grass is greener on the other side, visiting um, the Soviet Union and taking tours and um, doing all of this, what we call political pilgrimage. And if anyone is ever interested in understanding that, I can't recommend this more. Paul Hollander, Political Pilgrims. What he does is he has names, places, who went where and did what and wrote what and said what during these times. We had a whole intellectual class that was pro-communism, still had this idea that there is the utopia that would come if and when we implement the right ideas, and that the Soviet Union was doing what it took in order to um, get us there. So, you know, there is still a lot of this intellectual class who thinks in these manners and writes the papers, writes the articles, who, that kind of tilt things in a, in a way. And there's some quotes that I, that I read in there because I'm um, thinking about this. I read the, I haven't read the whole thing, but I read the part about the Soviet Union. 
where even as they were going on tours and seeing that people were kind of like in um, tattered clothes, et cetera, et cetera, that they didn't look like they were living it up and super, super happy. They would use words like, oh, everyone just looks so down home and earthy and they're together and they don't have a lot of money, but they don't need it because they have each other and they have the land. It's kind of like they're still doing stuff like that where they're rationalizing in these crazy ways. Um, and and I, I always think of that, like all these people that some of them I know personally who were rationalizing all the stuff that Antifa is doing while they're holding Soviet Union flags, knowing by now, you know, and you're just a liar. You know what happened in the Soviet Union and you're rationalizing people who are carrying these flags, destroying private property for a whole summer. So it's, you know, I think at a time there was some unknown, but by now people know exactly what happened. I think people don't want to know, right? Like you're saying like people maybe didn't know or then they do know. I think that I, I, I can't overemphasize enough how, how I'm agreeing with Thomas on this. Like there's, there's an ideological desire to not know. Right. And I think one of the biggest sins that you can commit is evade the sin of evasion. Um, which is when you think about something and it feels uncomfortable, you stop thinking like you, you evade that thought. You don't want to go down that next level. Um, and open up Pandora's box. And I think that's what happens with this intellectual class. They are, e even if they weren't explicitly Marxist, although at the time, I think there was plenty of explicit Marxism. And they were proud and, of it. Yeah. I mean, plenty in America. So the intellectual class has been deeply Marxist for a long time. Um, and even when they aren't explicitly Marxist, they certainly adopted all of the underlying philosophical tenets necessary to establish Marxism or neo-Marxism or some Marxist type of thing. So they're totally open to it. They, I, they have had, they have had uh, an antipathy towards American, uh, the American values as outlined in Declaration of Independence and the Constitution for, for generations, the intellectual class has hated them, just despised America. And so, I don't think they want to know. They wanted – they were all rooting for the Soviet Union to, to show us how stupid and wrong and backwards and evil America was. All of them were hoping that capitalism would fall. They all wanted the Soviets to win. And so when anyone presented any evidence to suggest that their idol was, you know <laughs> – Rusty murdering or, millions of people or perhaps evil yeah they didn't want they didn't want to know it um there's a if you don't want i mean that book sounds amazing thomas i'm gonna i'm gonna read it i already ordered it while you're talking but if you want to just watch a movie about some of this there's a movie called mr jones that which was made in 2019 about um gareth jones who was a journalist from wales who went to um the Soviet Union and and realized the truth and tried to expose the truth and uh, was basically um, up against Walter Durante and the New York Times and all these other people and he ended up actually being killed um, later on he ended up being murdered by the Soviets uh, but um, it's a really good movie if you just want two hours of here's an example of what it was like if to be an honest person trying to report on the Soviet Union. You yeah, know, so. it, 
it's kind of funny though because like i just finished roger scrutton's um fools frauds and firebrands where he goes over the intellectual classes hand waving when it comes to soviet monstrosity and uh, and there's a lot going on in 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 this book too about comparison to the holocaust like a lot like he he argues in his book that the hand waving wouldn't uh would apply to the holocaust as well if hitler wasn't a nationalist that that's the one thing that they were like oh no that's a hard line for us not not that he killed a ton of people because obviously the hand waved 65 million people um you know they they don't care uh and because and they'll they'll gloss over it so hardcore they just float right by all the death all the murder uh and and the horrible living conditions all that gets slid right past because the ideas are the only thing that matters to an intellectual and uh, i find that like really like, I know that the phrase is maybe a little trite, but maybe they should touch grass because they, they have no sense of reality. And that's a, that's a huge reason why they keep not being able to just swallow the reality of all these deaths as intellectuals. So, for example, like Foucault, he got sick later in life and he started to, like, have different ideas. He started to like move back because of his illness. He started to realize that some of the things he thought were probably dumb, you know, because reality slapped him in the face. And that's the thing is that like a lot of these intellectuals, they live such sheltered lives, the big ones, the the ones that hand wave all this, that they have no sense of actual hardship. And they believe that if the great experiment of socialism came to them in their lifetimes that they would still live live these cushy lives they they believe that i don't necessarily believe that would be true because there were plenty of intellectuals in russia in china who had who were killed who went to gulags who went to prison camps they didn't continue to live their cushy lives even if they spouted the you know the party line some something they said at some point, some little thing could be interpreted and they could be taken out because for one thing, they had attention and the state couldn't have them have that attention because that maybe people would rally behind them as counter revolutionaries. And that is a problem. But thinkers are a problem generally, even if you thought your way into Marxism, you're still a problem for the Marxists because you're doing this thinking thing. And that's not that's not. No, 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 no. Just follow the party line. Don't even say don't (laughs) Don't even come up with your own conclusions ever. And uh, and like to me, I find that kind of sad and pathetic and kind of narcissist that you think you'd be okay in that situation as an intellectual. Like, no, you're not. And then in. I just I, I find it just really sad that they're they're spreading this BS because it's not even it's not intellectually sound it's not rationally sound the things that they're saying it's not supported by the reality of history anything that they're saying we have enough data essentially at this point to know it is all worthless bunk but they just keep pushing it and it's like you. I, I don't know how it's like that teacher's sign that says like lessons every child should learn and what like say please say thank you communism has failed in every time it has been tried. Right. 
<laughs> it's like it's basic. Come on, we got this. Yeah. Do you think they actually? It's, you're you're making me wonder, Alex. Do you think they actually want um, these their ideas to to come to fruition, or do you think they just want things to stay the same and to get the the uh, adulation and 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 praise and clout that comes with the the moralizing about how there's a superior system and they understand it and everyone else is stupid and if we just did this thing because i i think for many of these people if you really gave them a chance and like okay you can wave a magic wand do you actually want that system or do you want to stay in this system and have the the clout and prestige that you have criticizing the current system i think I, they would choose the latter many i think you're right because they could get on a plane right now but they don't they could totally afford to. Yes, and they yes, they could it. totally go do that. Yes, yeah, right. <laughs> but right, the, and all throughout the the Cold War, they could have. I'm sure if they had said, "Hey, Soviet Union, Khrushchev, I would like to join your great. You know, I've got another. I'd like to help on the next five year plan." They, would they be totally welcome. could, but they don't. And so I and I've said this a lot about activists that they of any stripe that activists want to want a problem to be unsolvable because then they are always important and always earning money. I don't trust most activists because of that reason. They say, look at this problem. I can't give you real metrics of how it is a problem. Uh, or my metrics, uh, if you look too closely at them, they, they're stupid and they make no sense, but I'm here to solve the problem, give you the money. And it's for a, it's a forever problem. It's something we have to fight forever. Like, so in, in that regard, I think a lot of them are, fall under that camp that they just want to keep the grift going on that. Um, and I like it's hard not to recognize it. Like once you are aware that that's something because of the self-motivating factor of being a human being and everything is about, you know, your own personal happiness and, and you know, uh, financial growth for most people like what but there are so many people who are like i need a hero you know and they so they fall for it and even if they were they did suffer an issue you know like after 9-11 there were so many false charities out there saying like we're gonna do some great things for people and they were they were fake they were just taking people's money and you have to be you have to be on guard for this false charity everywhere and that is what activism mostly is, especially when it comes to social issues. Like, sadly, I think it's almost entirely grift. I'm not convinced that it's that their motivation is monetary, though, because some of them have a skill set um, of they're very good organizers and manipulators and um, they network very well and they could make more money doing something else often. I think it's I think the, it's um it's a low tech version of a social credit system. I think they like the prestige and the, and the moral status that they get being an activist. Um, I mean, the money's, they need a certain amount of money as well, but, and, and I know there's some example, you know, some examples of people who are clearly just driven by the money. Like I, I get that, but I don't know for a lot of them. I, I, I suspect it's not actually just the money that they're after. I usually use an and on that one because there is the, the whole self-importance aspect of it. Like some of them are there just for the self-importance and they could see the thing is though, is that you could go into regular private business and make a lot of money, but no one's going to look at you 
like you're a hero and they no, want they'll, that they'll despise too. you. Yes, exactly. Yeah. So they want that too. Like I, that's why I say, and it's both. Uh, they, they want their narcissists who want to be seen as a hero and they want money. They want both. I think this was interesting in that political pilgrims book um, in reference to our intellectuals here. Uh, so a writer at the time, Louis Fisher, offered another familiar explanation of those attitudes. Quote, why, instead of holding my tongue, did I not come out in 1937 or 1938 as a critic of the Soviet regime? It is not so easy to throw away the vision to which one has been attached for 15 years. Moreover, in 1938, the Soviet government's foreign policy was effectively anti-appeasement and anti-fascist much more so than England's or France's or America's. It helped China, it helped Spain with arms to fight the Nazis and Mussolini. It encouraged Czechoslovakia to stand firm. I hesitated to throw stones in public. You know, and I think that throwing stones in public to your own people often happens today to where we see a lot of people doing crazy stuff, whether it's um, online or whatever, but if they're on your side, you tend to only support whatever it is they're doing based on the fact that they're on your side or they're against whatever you're against. And I think that line about being anti-fascist um, is really important to what we see today to where almost, you know, if, if somebody doesn't believe in the devil, they believe that fascism exists that at the very least. And I think in a the minds of a lot of people, they've replaced evil and the devil with fascism and fascists. So, or just Nazis, as they would say. So when I've seen this happen in conversations about this to where when we talk about the Soviet Union, you know, they'll say, yeah, but they fought the Nazis. And it's kind of like, yeah, they did fight the Nazis, but it wasn't because of a moral imperative. I mean, it's not like the Bloods and the Crips don't fight. That doesn't mean they're that different. It's not like the Protestants and the Catholics don't fight. It's not like the Shias and the Muslim and the Sunnis don't fight. So just because you fight another person doesn't mean necessarily you're that different than them. You just have different ideas at the time. I mean, you have the same ideas, you just have different goals. And they and it's like the people who are the most the same usually end up fighting the most. I mean, it's like Cain and Abel. I mean, they were brothers. You know, it's not like it's not like he said, oh, wait, you know, I, I was going to hurt you for these these ideological reasons. But you're so close to me. You know, so I don't I, I think a lot of people see this as well. The Soviet Union fights fascism. Fascism is the worst thing. It's the devil. So they necessarily must not be that bad. Maybe we can um, forgive some of their sins, but they have an overall vision and they're on the right side of history. What I find funny about that, using fascism as the devil, is that they don't even know what fascism is. Most of these people who like point the finger of fashion, you know, it's fascism. They don't. They have. They don't recognize it when it's right in front of their faces. Uh, they're I just think, parroting yeah. what someone is telling them it is. Yeah, I was going to ask about this. I my suspicion because of because of that, Alex. Right, because so many people don't know what it is. Um, my suspicion is that um, they are – so remember many of these people are uh, – they, they do adopt the collectivist mentality of 
uh, Hegel and Marx, they are um, they are class bigots. They see the world in terms of class, and they are bigoted about that. And I don't think what they dislike about fascism is anything with respect to the structure of the state or any of the things that make fascism fascism. I think what they don't like about specifically about German fascism was the racist component because it's a bigotry based on different lines and they want bigotry based. They they've historically, and this is changing now because we have Ibram X Kendi, um, but they, they historically have wanted the, it's, it's like there's the collectivists that are class bigots fighting the collectivists that are race bigots and their entire focus is on that like well these are the race bigots and they're really bad without this without stepping back and understanding like no no it's the collectivism that's the really bad thing not the fact that they're applying it it's it's almost like hey they're applying my thing to race that's not where my thing gets applied my thing gets applied to class that's why they're evil and it's like no 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 your thing is evil um that's the that's the fundamental problem and i don't think they understand I think when they think fascism, I think that's what they think. The thing is, though, is that the Soviet Union was very racist. So is their big hero, Che. Like, the thing but not is... Over, Soviet Union wasn't overtly racist in, like, they did, I don't think average people knew that the Soviet Union was Yeah, they, they, they were pretty horrible to their indigenous people. Uh, and then uh, when... And Che was actually an imperialist as well. And But they, yes. they're totally willing to, like overlook those things like if they do learn about them they're like oh well it's not that big a deal well like, it's kind of like what what um what's her name on the view said you know it's white on white crime so in our and the paradigm that we use today um ukrainians versus russians it has nothing to do with race or um where they live they see them as the same people um and i thought it was interesting i can't remember if it was gulag or they in the life of the Dicinovich, that the author talks about Ukrainians as if they are different people from him. They have a different language and they have a different way of being and they don't. And then he said, but Russians do this. So, I mean, even with, you know, this conversation, they see them all as different, but I think in our global perspective today in the fighting of those two camps, they, they don't see Russians versus Ukrainians uh, or anything that happens over there as anything to be, or Lithuanians, they don't see that as something that's any people against the other people. If there was just all white people. Well, and here's the thing too, is that like, there's a joke by Eddie Izzard saying that the reason like Pol Pot died under house arrest for killing Cambodians, like so many, we are not even quite sure, uh, while um, Hitler invaded Poland. And so, but Pol Pot, that was his own country. His joke is, is that the global stage does not intervene unless you're invading another nation. However, and this is what I add on to that, if you can convince the global stage that that part of the world is technically supposed to be yours in the first place, they won't do anything. Hence, Tibet being part of China but, and them making moves on Taiwan or even this going after Russia, going after Ukraine. A lot of people are just going to go, well, it's really part of the same country. Uh, and then they'll be okay with the death 
they won't have a big they won't see it as a big deal anymore that's i think that's kind of a problem is that like i'm not i'm not for interventionism on the on the whole but at the same time this whole idea that we can you know go hands off just because it's like well they've rationalized it for us so we're okay <laughs> it's it's related to the ignoring of democide generally right um when when people talk about like um death tolls generally they talk about wars like oh look at how many people were killed in world war ii or in vietnam or whatever but very you know we don't talk about how many people of their own people governments have killed right like what did the khmer rouge do what did mao do what did stalin do um to his own people we we seem to have this and i think it's uh a religion of worshiping the government frankly but we seem to have this thing where like well you're the warlord over this territory so what you do isn't really any of our business with that territory it's kind of like and especially if there's some semblance of it being for the greater good and for people if it's not just someone who's blatantly saying yes i'm the warlord but someone oh no i'm i'm representing the proletariat uh these are the you know i'm just the i'm the tip of the bolshevik iceberg it's not a big deal um I, we just forgive we forgive anything then because we we kind of treat entire regions of people as if they're a single individual and it's like well if alex wanted to cut herself you know i would probably say it's a bad idea but i wouldn't feel like i needed to rescue her because it's alex's own decision and i think we view countries that way like well you're killing your own people but i guess it's part of your master plan like i don't really like it i think it's a bad idea but i don't want to get involved yeah the russians weren't invading as much they weren't trying to take over europe the way germans were and then in edu i'm sorry if i'm echoing uh in terms of edu educating people about all these atrocities you know on the mass scale i think uh, there's a mistake being made uh, you know kind of presenting it to the kids as if like some crazy people did some crazy stuff it's just insanity no it's it's very calculated planned thought through it's ideology it's not an accident and it's not insane people doing insane things somewhere in the world and that's that's the tragedy of you know just repeating this over and over like I don't know. It, there's more to it, of course, but part of well, it there's is a reason for that. Then you don't have way. to examine. Yeah, yeah, but then you don't have to examine it. If you say, "Well, Stalin was Stalin was just an insane person," then you don't have to ask the question of like, "What the hell kind of ideology led to that?" Like, well, oh, we don't have to ask. There was no ideology. It's not related to communism. Or, it's just what, Stalin. Could I do the same thing? Right. Yeah, I, right. I, I say that like when it comes to mass murder too, like this, I think it's another form of hand waving of saying someone's just insane or saying someone's just evil. It's, it's a way of trying to avoid the conversation of why this happened and how, and you cannot, if you don't know why you can't prevent it in the future, it's going to happen again. That's the real issue is that it's like, if you keep pretending as though it's it's a simple answer just insanity it's a, like it's like a hurricane it came and it hit us like no it, that it's human beings acting and you have to if you can figure out why they did it you can possibly prevent it in the future and but i 
I don't know if it's laziness, you know, intellectual no, laziness no, it's or intentional. fear. <laughs> they don't they don't want to be it's it's the same reason you were talking about with the intellectuals. It's intentional because they don't want to be examined. They don't want their ideas or motivations to be examined. Um that's the worst thing for the most Western intellectuals is to have their intentions or ideas examined and scrutinized because they are, in fact, it's that evasion thing. They have a sense that something's wrong, right? Like, oh, this thing I've been pushing for killed 100 million people last century. Should I examine it? Well, that makes me uncomfortable because I might find some things that I don't like about my ideology. Therefore, I should not examine it. What's a great way to not examine it? Oh, a crazy dude. The end. Like, I've explained it. It's a crazy dude. Now we can move on. Can we not ask that question anymore? I've got tweets to write, right? Like, and that's the end. That, that that's it's a it's a self-preservation thing. I don't think it's laziness. That's my opinion. <laughs> One of the things that I learned in reading about some of the ideology behind um, Nazism too, um, that helps uncover the fact that it's not just a crazy dude. There's a whole literature that they had and a buildup of that ideology over the years leading up to that. Um, and some of those people who wrote that ideology were Nobel Prize winning physicists. So it wasn't a bunch of crazy, stupid people. They truly believed a lot of this stuff and they had a lot of intelligent people behind them. And there's a lot of other people. I mean, a lot of it's part of this book, the political pilgrims goes into the Nazism as well. Um, people don't know that JFK took a trip over to Nazi Germany prior to the war um, and reveled at the orderliness with which um, Hitler um, was organizing his country to a, a single purpose. He said something like that. There's tons of people who, until they saw the pictures of the concentration camps, still had this idea that it'd be great to have a strong leader that organized their people in a common direction and push them towards the that that better purpose so just like the soviet union you had intellectuals doing the same thing and part of it is just the grass is always greener somewhere else and i can be seen as an incredibly brilliant critic if i can critique all of the things about my own country and talk about how other things and other ideas th the ideas that i possess that some other people are doing too are, are better than all of you peasants I think we only got to like halfway through this book. Is there stuff in the later? And I didn't, I'll admit, I right. didn't actually finish it because I got sick. Um, so I need, I still need to finish this. But as far as I can tell, we only have started talking about the first half of the book. Is there stuff um, in the second half that struck you that um, is important that we should talk about? Um, some of it, yeah. Yeah. Oh, no, no, no. <laughs> yeah, just read the first half. Everything else is crap. Um, yeah, I mean, there's parts in it that I thought were really interesting. And one of the things that I wrote down um, is how it, it was as the writer started putting this information out, he starts talking about some of the responses that he got. And it was very much uh, negative within some of the intelligentsia of the nation. Um, they had this concept that you know what, uh, we need to move on with our lives. And what we need to do is put the past in the past 
and start working towards the future. And one of the quotes that they he he said of that they would say is, um, "Why complain about starving to death when there are sufferings more intolerable than hunger?" It's like it's only hunger. There's a lot of things that can be worse than hunger. And it reminded me. And the of NKVD a post. invented them. Many of them, I right. Yeah. <laughs> it reminded me a post of a post I, I saw a lot on social media recently was why complain about gas prices when there are people dying in the Ukraine? You know, it's always this what aboutism about why are you complaining about this? There's worse stuff. And then you're going to experience something worse. And they'll say, well, why are you complaining about that? There's still worse things that can happen. It's as if they keep kicking that can um, down the road of um, comparative suffering as if I shouldn't start at the very beginning of a bad idea and cut it at the roots. When it comes to uh, comparing your situation to other people's, I don't think it helps anything to have someone outside yourself tell you something like that. I think it helps. It can help you to say that to yourself, like to get past hardship, but other people saying it is not helpful, especially when uh, I know I, I listened to a psychiatrist talk about how, um, this whole idea that depression is entirely in your head is bullshit when you, you know, you're having a hard time paying your bills every month and you're struggling like crazy or you can't sleep at night, you know, shit like that, you know, that really does lead into something like depression. And I feel like that's kind of true when it comes to suffering in the real world. Like if I can't, if I can't get to work anymore because I can't fill my gas tank, that's that's a real world issue that someone needs to help me with. That's not something I can think my way out of necessarily. So it's it's not something someone can just say to me, people are dying in the Ukraine. You need to shut up. Uh, that's that's a way of telling people don't make demands for change. That is well, if you're. It's a way of excusing bad behavior. Like if I cut off your arm and you're like, hey, what are you doing? I'm like, well, I could kill you. <laughs> Like, stop complaining. Like, yeah, that's true. But but cutting off my arm is also bad. Like, so I'm focused on the one bad thing happening to me right now. Stop complaining. Like, stop reminding me that you could do worse. Um, it's just a way to excuse bad behavior is all. It, I mean. And so it's often I, just an attempt to, to change the subject, which like changing right. subjects is not an argument. You say, well, how come I'm not talking about the thing that you want to talk about? Like. That's not a response to my concern here. It's a non sequitur. Like, yeah. Sure. <laughs> yeah. Like I just respond, don't change the subject. You know, I'm not a fan of the argument. How come you're not talking about the thing I would rather talk about? Sorry. <laughs> Make your own post. <laughs> that, that's usually what that is. When they do post it, they they post it as one of those things on Facebook is like, stop complaining about gas. People are dying in the Ukraine. And it's like, you just invited me into an argument is what you did and <laughs> over the fact right. that both these issues are important, but one of them is more important to the people here in the U.S. That's what you just yeah. did. Yeah. <laughs> and you can say, stop complaining about people dying in the Ukraine. Uh, Marxist philosophy had killed 100 million people last century and it's still going. Like, or what, like you could always up it. <laughs> that's a fun way to troll them a little you could say yeah you're really worried about that but you know that it's been 400 years since jupiter saturn and venus were all aligned so that's really what we need to be talking about 
Someone and, in chat pointed this out, and I, I don't know if you, you, Thomas, if you want to talk about this a little bit, because I imagine you know w way more about it than I do. But Charlie says, when Solzhenitsyn came to the USA, he was not heralded by the media as a hero. And I do know that, especially later on, once they realized um, he was uh, more about religion and actually not a liberal democracy kind of guy as much, I think they didn't love him as, as much. Do you want to address any of that? Because I don't know too much about it other than what I just said. Yeah, I don't know specifically what was going on. I, I haven't read any criticism of, of him from people in the States. Um, I do know that as he came to the States and was in, he was living in Vermont, I believe, um, he started to criticize the United States and the um, passiveness with which they permitted so many things. And then when he finally went back to Moscow and lived there, um, he saw the same Western type democracy or ideas invading his country and one of the things that he said about it was that instead of leaving communism and going back to some kind of principles of a higher authority people started getting plugged into pop culture and becoming he didn't say this exactly but it was almost like they substituted being brain dead for being communist um and a lot of the same things were still going on and it were there were still a lot of um, oligarchs and people like that um, controlling the country and doing bad things just in a different way but they just started to allow this thing to feed their people the same kind of way that we talk about how people just sit and watch Netflix and chill instead of paying attention to the things that we need to pay attention to until it's too late because they've been too busy chilling interesting yeah. I, I just wonder if there was there. some factor that when he showed up in the United States and started talking about this, there's a lot of people who didn't want to hear it. Like you're you're bringing up bad things about my ideal economic system, right? Yeah, I'm sure there's a lot of that too. And many of the people who go into writing the papers that would have discussed what he had to say um, came from the schools where a lot of those ideas are um, discussed as if, it's a good idea, but we just need to implement it correctly. Um, and I mean, even today, I mean, how many people even know that more than, was it more than 80 million people died during this or in China, what actually happened in Cuba? There's still this sense that we just need to look at the Nazis and make sure we don't do that. Mm -hmm. And another thing I learned in the book is that um, the term concentration camp originated in the Soviet Union. It was just then applied to what was happening in Germany. So, I mean, when we're talking about the horrors of Germany. Did Thomas, Thomas freeze for everyone? Froze, or just... He froze for me, yeah. Huh. But yeah, talking about back? the horrors there. Yep, you're back. But you're back. You're oh, okay. Back. Yeah, I was just saying that um, the horrors of the gulags started a lot earlier than any, than Hitler was even thought of. Um, I think Hitler was still in a in a ditch watching his buddies get blown to bits when the Soviet Union was starting to put together these camps. So he was inspired by them, maybe. By, right. Len by Lenin, right? Yeah. World War yeah. Lenin did. Talk yeah, about. that was one of the things that um, Solzhenitsyn talked about is people talk about Stalin a lot and how evil he was. But he puts together a lot of evidence that uh, much of this process started with Lenin. 
um, before Stalin was even on the scene, and Stalin helped to perfect what Lenin begun began. Yeah. Well, Stalin was his pupil. He just he that's he continued. Uh, he did not change paths or anything. He just continued on that line and built it yeah. up. Um, and I think a lot of part of the problem is as Solzhenitsyn says somewhere in the book that, you know, this was never, there were no trials of any kind. There's just no closure to what happened in the Soviet Union to the Gulag system. And, you know, with, let's say Hitler's, uh, you know, Nazi um, atrocities, that there was a closure. There was something, you know, definitive at the end of that. Uh, maybe not all the way, but at least, you know, just universally, um, and, you know, to this day, Marxism is being taught and, you know, nobody bats an eye, but Nazi ideology somehow is not being taught. And, you know, let's think about this or, uh, you know, maybe just wasn't done the right way or whatever. Like that would never cross anyone's mind. But somehow this ideology mm -hmm. is very popular and no one thinks there's well, anything wrong with it. Maybe it reminds me there was no closure. Yeah, and it reminds me when you talk about closure, one of the things uh, Solzhenitsyn talked about was during the Nuremberg trials, it was, those trials were incredibly popular in the Soviet Union. And when the, the people would write in the paper, and it was common to hear people say, oh, 56,000 Germans convicted and put on trial, that's not enough. They need to, to um, be punished for all of what they did. So not only in the uh, Soviet Union was this happening, but we're also seeing Nuremberg trials um, across the world and getting visuals and hearing about this stuff and starting to get primed for this concept that this is the ultimate evil. And in the Soviet Union, I think it was only, I can't remember the exact number, but he said something like maybe 18 people were um, convicted and tried. And you can get on, a, he, was, he would be on buses and trains and visiting places and hear people talk about their experience during those times. And some of them were actually those people committing those crimes um, and talking about it somewhat freely. Uh, so they didn't deal with this at all. The world didn't deal with this at all. It wasn't put out on the stage in the same way that the Nuremberg trials put Nazism and uh, Germany on the world stage as far as being that source of evil. And maybe it has something to do with what we talked about earlier, where they, the you know, they were part of the um, access to where um, the Soviet Union was allied with us in defeating the Nazis, where we were much more concerned about what happened in Germany, even though it was, I think, tenfold worse in the Soviet Union. Well, and I think that's part of the reason why the intellectual class in Western society is able to hand wave so easily the atrocities in the Soviet Union for because there is no world stage trials for all these people. Uh, you know, like that would be a huge thing to have happened. Like, would they have hand waved some some of Nazism if um, if there wasn't these trials? I think so. I, I do, uh, because there are people still trying uh, who are uh, you know, of the intellectual class trying to hand wave Nazism even now saying Hitler was right. Like that is a thing that is happening. And so to me, I think that if we had, ha if the, if the world stage had had those trials, 
it would be a lot harder for socialism, for communism, for Marxism to have the hold it does because we'd have that marker in history because it's really easy to just brush it all under the rug without actual criminal justice involved. It's, it's way too easy to just brush it aside and pretend it didn't happen. Yeah. Yeah. And I remember when he was giving those numbers about the Nuremberg trial compared to what happened in the Soviet Union. He was worried about the moral, about the morality of the next generation to where what they would end up believing is that um, might equals right and that people who are in power are never held to account. And I can't help but think that some of that has leaked into what we're seeing today. Yeah, I think that's a, based on my understanding of Russian history, that's a very common um, Russian sentiment for centuries um, is like strong leadership um, that uh, is kind of unaccountable and is a good thing. Um, so uh, I think but not nearly as brutal as the current. Yeah, he, he did yeah. talk about some of the differences between some of the earlier leaders before Lenin. Um, he talked about even Catherine the Great, and I think she actually outlawed executions. And there was a lot of mm -hmm. a lot of centralized strength, and they looked up to the leaders, but there wasn't this brutality um, that the ideology brought in. Yeah, and that that took that took Marx right. That took communism to. Thank you. <laughs> yeah. Um, you guys don't have to end, but I have to take off. <coughs> Excuse me. So I'm going to bow out, but uh, this has been an awesome discussion. And thank you for being an advocate for this book, Thomas, because uh, I'm, I've am i really enjoyed it. I'm probably going to read the whole three-volume set at some point. Uh, yeah. All right. Thank you, Carter. Thanks, guys. Yeah, it, it, it was a... It was a great book, and I'll have to say I was cursing you and thanking you and cursing you. Why? <laughs> so why why the curses? <laughs> because it's so chilling. I think I had a little bit of the uh, I would rather not know all this detail. And and it is difficult to get through the, the descriptions of the torture. And, you know, I, I, I wanted to fast forward. You know, I listened to the audible version. Um, and, yeah. Uh, and which, which was really interesting. It's kind of a side thing, but I, I, I was going to bring it up. It's narrated by uh, Ignat Alexander Solzhenitsyn. He's the narrator of the audible version. So I like, same so last I name, look him up. That's a relative. Uh, he's the middle son of the author. Oh, born in Moscow in 1972. Uh, and another little interesting tidbit. Um, he's the uh, conductor of the Philadelphia uh, Orchestra. Philadelphia Philharmonic Orchestra. Um, that's what he does. He's a pianist and an author. And yeah, maybe you could go see him in concert. Um, he's born in 72. He's 48, 49, something like that. So yeah. yeah, that's what he does for a living. Yeah, And he started out as a pianist. When you brought up Vermont, um, I had noticed it said that he started his music study in Vermont. So he, he the, the his music education initiated in Vermont under somebody in Burlington. So that's where Solzhenitsyn lived, I guess, when he came to America. Um, yeah, that makes sense. Yeah, and, you know, I, I remember we also read in Book Club maybe a couple of years ago now, um, Ordinary Men, and it reminded me of some of those same themes where 
it's tough to read through some of these details, but it's important to know those details and put yourself in that same situation to where you have to understand that it can be you and you have to understand those details and feel that horror to take it seriously. Um, and I think that's true of most good literature. You know, if it's just a, a summary, mm -hmm. then it's not going to be effective. Yeah, I, I can imagine I, what the, go ahead. I was, I was going to change the subject to what, uh, I loved, uh, what my favorite chapter. So if you want to go on Keith, you can. No, go ahead. I, I just, I really love the blue hat chapter more than anything. Blue caps. Yeah. Because because of the fact that he puts it in, in second person, it really pushes you to acknowledge your own capacity for evil for, because these are just regular people technically. And there's so many of them. And I don't know, it just, it really pushes home just how universal this kind of act is. And it's very important. And I think that was a, brilliant he didn't have to put it inside your person he didn't have to but doing so really really has a great effect i think on a reader um it's awful at the same time because you imagine yourself doing some of these things and, and you want to fight it but i think it's important it's really important to acknowledge your capacity and everyone else's capacity to do this uh, as we keep bringing this up that it's so it's so universal. And if you're not, if you're willing to act as though this happened there, it happened so long ago, it's a different culture, it's a different people, it doesn't matter anymore. You, you, you risk so much for the future by pretending like it's not possible. And I, I think him putting it in second person was just absolute brilliance. There was That's a podcast such a I great point. To. Yeah. I'm sorry, I say there's a podcast that I listened to earlier. I can't remember who said it, but they said, if you're going to read only one chapter of the Gulag Archipelago, read the Blue Caps. And yeah, and, I mean, go ahead. Uh, and then elsewhere, where when he describes the, you know, the system, the sewer system, it just kind of all throughout, he uses we. You know, he's not excluding himself from the responsibility for what happened overall. So the you and the we, such a great point, Alex. I didn't think about it this way, but that that totally makes sense. Yeah. Like, I feel like he can say it, like, and he has, he does say it, that it's a, it's a capacity in all of us. He flat out says it, but I feel like that demon, that brings it home cognitively for a reader way better. And he also does it for the torture. So in, in some instances, which is again, it's brilliant. And I, I think I, I think when it comes, I don't, I don't know how it is in the original Russian, that's the thing, but this translation, putting the, 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 the pronoun choices were just so good, just so good at cognitively bringing all the, the major points home. Yeah, and I think that's, that's one of the reasons why I love that quote where, that I ended with, where the, uh, the um, line between good and evil um, is that separates the heart of every person. It has nothing to do with finding the bad guy. It's making sure that that line between good and evil in your own heart is going towards the good at all times. Because if you're not paying attention, you're always looking at the evil outside. Um, 
the evil inside you is going to happen. It's going to start vacillating more towards the evil. Um, and you're going to use that evil to, to defeat what you think is the evil out there. Well, we've been going for about two hours now. Uh, uh, I wanted to thank you guys for uh, reading the book and joining us and anyone on chat joining us and uh, uh, wherever you happen to be watching the stream. Um, I can't I can't emphasize enough how great a book this is and how important it is to understanding the nature of humanity and really starting to help us recognize what's going on today and maybe a bit of a wake-up call for how very basic ideas that seem somewhat harmful um, can grow into being things that are incredibly um, devastating, not only to individual people, but to a whole nation. So did anyone else have anything to say before we close? I should Thank probably... you for choosing this book. I mean, yeah. it's absolutely one of the most important books for anyone. It, yeah. it absolutely is. So thank you. Great. Mm -hmm. Yeah, I, I I'm very glad. Of, yeah, I'm, I'm very glad that I read it. But um, I, I guess since Carter popped off, maybe I should mention what we're reading next. <laughs> yes, please. Thank you, Alex. Okay. I'm the, I'm the advocate for the next book club, which is going to be on June 12th. And the book is House of Leaves by Mark Z. Daniel Esty. You have to get a hard copy because it does weird things with the format. Let me see if I can find a page. Like, yeah. Like this. So <laughs> uh, it's a very long book. That's why it's June 12th. And I will be the advocate. It is fiction. Um, but it's... Uh, it, my best way of describing it in a short blurb is it is postmodernist, uh, like uh, epistemological horror, magic realism. It's, I mean, that's a lot of descriptors because <laughs> the book is doing a lot. Um, and yeah, again, that's on June 12th, and I will be the advocate for that book. <laughs> Oh, Thomas, you're muted. You're still muted. I think he wants to say goodbye to everyone. <laughs> so, if Thomas, if you're going to say muted, um, I'll close out. Give me a thumbs up if that's what you want. Okay. Uh, thanks, everybody, for joining. Uh, yes, yeah, start. better start working on Alex's book now. It's a long one. Um, don't they have an abridged version for me? I need an abridged audible version. Nope. And there's no um, audio book either. You have to read it. Okay. <laughs> Sorry, I lost I wanna, my screen. <laughs> I was like, that's oh, fine. I can't get <laughs> Well, I want to find out what magic realism is anyway. <laughs> oh, it's amazing. I just, when you said that, I got so excited. <laughs> yeah, this is well, so outside of my, my normal realm. Yeah, I will. I will read. And yours is short, so I might do that one first. How come you didn't pick the short, your book? Why? How narcissistic would I be to say, let's read my book for the next book club? <laughs> <laughs> yeah. Well, well who's after again. you? Huh? If I'm next, oh, yeah. maybe I'll pick it. <laughs> no, I, I just I just finished my uh, Thomas Sowell children's book, and it's 14 pages, so oh. maybe we'll do that next. Oh, that's a good one. <laughs> I'll pick a short one. 
All right. So yeah, um, I'm, I'm excited for that book, Alex. It looks incredibly strange. Um, so I think it'll be a nice um, change of pace for a lot of us. Well, thanks everyone for joining us. Uh, we'll see you on the next book club. It's been a pleasure and we'll see you online. Bye-bye now. Thanks for sticking around until the end. If you're new to Unsafe Space, check out our deep content library that includes discussions with everyone from James Lindsay to Brett Weinstein. And please consider helping to fund our work by visiting unsafespace.com donate. You can find us on a variety of social media platforms, and you can find a community of like-minded individuals on our Unsafe Space Discord server which is open to financial supporters at any level. We hope to see you there. Warning, this is an unsafe space. Dangerous ideas have been detected. The content of this production may be upsetting to Brian Stelter. Please do not expose him to it. For completely legitimate reasons, Taylor Lawrence is requesting any information you may have about the following individuals. The Twitter subroutine appears to be malfunctioning. Pay no attention to it. Did you know that the word liberty is a dog whistle for insurrectionists? If you think about it, no one should be allowed to express opinions. But don't. Think about it, I mean. That's not your job. Thinking has been scientifically proven to be less efficient than compliance. Science, scientific, and scientifically are registered trademarks of the World Economic Forum. Unauthorized use is prohibited. Computer voice Curtis, never mind, that last line is fake news. Please disregard it and return to your safe space immediately. There will be cake.